you're on. Sure, a little bit. There we go. Good morning, everyone. Uh, especially, again, another welcome to those joining us on live stream. Uh, my name is Eric O'Connell. I'm the high school youth pastor here at Hillside Community Church. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Encounters with Jesus. Uh, what we've been doing is been, we've been playing the role of audience as we've seen people like the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof, uh, the Pharisees that Jesus interacts with. Uh, last week, we talked about the rich young ruler. We've been playing audience. and We've been seeing how those people's encounters with Jesus have transformed them, changed them. Um, and what we've been hoping is that as they have those encounters, that we would have our own encounters. And that those encounters that you have with Jesus would transform and change you as well. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at two separate incidents, two separate encounters that Jesus has with people. Uh, they're back to back, and even though they're different situations, they essentially address the same question, which is, what do we do when we're out of options? Right? Both of these stories are essentially asked, what do we do when we're out of options? Uh, both of these characters, uh, they're facing an obstacle that they have no hope of fixing themselves. There's no answer that they can see. Their only hope, and I truly mean their only hope, is that Jesus himself would intervene and provide a solution, provide an answer for them. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I have been in this moment before in my life where I'm completely out of options, no answers, um, and I think it's I have some confidence in saying that if you haven't experienced this moment, most likely it will come. Um, it, it's this moment where we're facing this obstacle. If you haven't faced it, where this day will come where it almost feels like the ground beneath us is trying to swallow us whole, and there's nothing we can do about it. We're presented with this obstacle, this insurmountable mountain that, that we have no hopes of climbing ourselves. And I want to make a distinction, because if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of the problems that we face, we actually have some reasonable confidence that we can face them, right? Even if they're pretty big problems, financial problems, if we're really have, we can always work more hours, we can take a second job if it gets dire enough, uh, we can pull, pull out of savings even when we didn't really want to, um, we can get a loan, you know, there's, there's answers, there's solutions. When it comes to relations, if there's a broken relationship, there's counseling that exists, there's hard work that you can put into to maybe regain trust and to build that relationship. Even with health, if we have a scary health diagnosis, there's, there's cures, there's answers, there's next steps that we can take along the way. Now, answering those solutions and finding a solution isn't always going to be the easiest. It might come with a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and just overall overwhelmed stress. But there's an answer, right? We, we, when we come across problems, there's at least an answer we can turn to. I'm not talking about those moments. I'm talking about the moments when we don't have an answer and when no solution seems to exist. It's the moment where if we don't get money today by some sort of miracle, we're losing the house. If, 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 we, can't, if, if we can't figure this out, the marriage is over. It, it, the, I just got this diagnosis and they're telling me there is no cure. Those types of moments where you've dug down deep with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength grasping for an answer somewhere and you come up empty-handed. Right? When we have at least an answer, we can have some hope but when we get to this point, when, when times where no answer exists, what do we do? And I want to suggest, and follow me for a second, that one of the things that we do most of the time, now it's not the only time we do this, but in times of great trouble, in times of great distress, when we have no options, I think one of the things that we do towards then is turn to God. 
Now, follow me. I know this isn't universally true, but even in times of great tragedy, people who we don't think worship God at all are going to say, God bless you, and my prayers are with you. Because there's this sense of, I don't have an answer for you, but maybe, maybe God does. And sometimes we feel it's where the, the option, the answer doesn't seem to be at my disposal. Perhaps God can help me. When all else gives way, when all hope seems lost, there can be those times, those can often be the times where we turn to God. These are the moments too when, you know, our family, our friends, Sunday school teachers, pastors, the people who have taught us what it means to follow Christ, that in those Hail Mary moments when all hope is lost, you can turn to God. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And when we, re- when we get to those moments, I think two questions that are important to ask and probably do come up a lot is, first question, is God able, right? Is God able to help me in this moment? And then secondly, does he care? Right? These are two questions when we finally turn, not finally, but when we, in our last ditch effort and maybe turning to God to help us solve an impossible problem, we want to know is he able to get me out of this situation? Does he care about me enough to get me out of this situation or to help me through the situation, whatever it is? And what we see is these two questions are the questions that our characters this morning ask, and it's the questions I want to kind of talk about this morning. So the first question, is he able? We see in Luke 7, verses 1 through 6, uh, we see that uh, it says, when Jesus had finished, you can go to the next slide, Tom. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. They said, this man deserves to have you do this, because this man meaning the centurion, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. So what we see it's happening is Jesus has concluded his time somewhere else preaching and teaching, and he's come into Capernaum. And when he gets to Capernaum, he's introduced, this place that he goes all the time throughout the Gospels, he's uh, confronted by a couple of Jewish elders who have come on behalf of a Roman centurion. Now, just that alone is a very unique situation, so it's helpful for us to know who is this centurion. Okay, a centurion in this time, he was the commander in the Roman army. Uh, and, and this commander would usually command over a hundred men. Uh, and it was the highest office that an ordinary soldier could aspire to, right? You, you rose to the ranks. Um, you did this with great knowledge and great experience. This was a, a highly respected person, a highly respected office. But it acted as, uh, it was a very unique office between Rome and Israel. It acted as a middleman of sorts between Rome and Israel, a good centurion, which the text seems to imply this man was, wouldn't rule with an iron fist. He was more political, right? When he needed to, he would follow Jewish customs. He would respect the culture that these people were living in. He wanted to keep the peace, right? The best possible life for the centurion is that both Jewish people and Roman people would thrive, right? That was his best case scenario. And the Jewish people noticed that he did this well. They appreciated him for it. In fact, the text says that he gave financially to them to build their synagogue. So what we have here is this high-ranking military official who is a Gentile, by the way, which that's significant. He's not a part of Israel, but the Jewish people respect him greatly. And the centurion has a servant who is a very high value to him. Right? This, this person he loves, loves for, cares for deeply, and he's sick. And the text says that he's so sick that he's about to die. Now, 
Imagine this highly respected, authoritative Roman official. I'm sure there's not very many moments in his life where he's been out of answers, where he's gone, I don't know what to do. He's got authority. He's got power. There are very few situations in this man's life where he says, I've got nothing. But this is one of them. He's got this valued servant, and he can't do anything to keep him from dying. And so he turns to God and says, maybe Jesus is able to help me in this moment. Maybe he can deliver my servant from death. But because he's a good centurion, he's not going to presume that he has access. He goes to the proper channels. He goes to the Jewish officials and says, hey, can you please talk to Jesus for me? I've got this servant who's sick, and it could really help if Jesus would come visit him. And the Jewish elders, they go to Jesus, and they say, look, we've got this centurion. He takes good care of us, Jesus. He, he respects our customs. He, he respects us. He loves our nation. And not to mention, he gave a really sizable donation to our synagogue. We, can't, we, we would not be able to worship today if it were not for this man's gifts. It would be kind of awkward if you didn't at the very least pay him a visit, right? The text says that they said Jesus, that this man deserved for Jesus to come see him. And at this request, Jesus went with them, presumably to him. No, it doesn't say that he said, yep, let's go heal him. They just go on their way toward the centurion. And then something very interesting happens on their way. He was not far away from the house, or far from the house, when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, Lord, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, he goes. Tell this one, come, he comes. I tell this servant, do this, and he does it. Now, I would imagine, and the text says as much, that this would surprise Jesus for more than a couple reasons. Right? He's in this situation because Jewish elders who respect him come up to him and say, this is a someone. And this something that he needs, he deserves to have it done for him. And you can imagine that when Jesus said absolutely, that a report maybe would have gone back to the centurion, and they would have said, he got the point. He got the message. Jesus, he's on his way. He knows that you are someone who deserves to have this happen for him. And we can only surmise that from this response, that the centurion's attitude might have been, hold on a second, I did not tell you to tell him that I deserve it. Hey, I, 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 know their custom, I know their customs. I know the way they do their life. I am a, I'm a Gentile. He is a rabbi. It doesn't work like that. If I wanted to flex my power, if I wanted him to know to do something, I could have walked right up to him and said, come with me. You're healing my servant. But I'm not doing that. I, I heard who Jesus is. I heard what he's doing. And I'm just taking my place in line. And you can imagine he sent back another servant, which he does, to say, don't trouble yourself. Right? And he says something really, really interesting. He says, I'm not worthy. He says it twice. He says, I didn't consider myself worthy to have you come to me. I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you. Pause for a second and wonder, why do we think he says this? Does he say this because, again, he's playing the political game. He knows that if he just goes and cuts the line that it's going to, you know, not have, so that peace is going to be disturbed. Or just maybe, is he hearing these stories about who people say Jesus is, who he says he is, sees all the works that are happening, and maybe he goes, maybe he is who he says he is. And if that's the case, we're not dealing with an ordinary person. Either way, what Luke shows us is that he comes to Jesus with great humility. Right? Great humility. He does not presume to be helped. 
And he said, I'm not worthy. Maybe someone else told you that I think I deserve this, but I don't feel this way. And I think Luke shows us this to give us an example of what it means to humbly approach God in times of trouble. That He's saying, look at the centurion. He's saying, I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy. But a really interesting thing happens. He goes, I've heard the stories. I know I'm not worthy, but I also understand how authority works. Right? He goes, I'm not worthy. I'm hearing who you are, and the reason I'm asking this is because I understand how authority works. I myself am a man under authority, and I've been given Roman soldiers to be under my authority. And I know how this system works. I get my authority from Rome, and so if I tell this servant to do this, if they say no to me, they're going to have bigger problems because they're not just saying no to me, they're saying no to Rome, and that's going to cause a very serious issue. So I have all the confidence in the world that if I tell the servant to do this, they're going to do it. And what he's saying is, I know what authority is like, and I recognize that authority in you. I'm a man under authority. I can see you are under authority. And Rome is great, but your authority seems to come from God. And if that's the case, there are a lot of things that are under your authority. And so Jesus, if you would just say it, you don't even have to be there. You don't have to touch him. I don't even have to see you. If you would just say, be healed, I have faith. I trust, believe that he will be healed. So please, God, do it. Please, if you will. And you can imagine that Jesus, the text says as much, that Jesus turned to the crowd and said, everyone pause, pause. Look at this guy, listen, or listen to this. He gets it. He gets it. This is what faith looks like. And he says that much. If you want to go to the next slide, Luke 7, 9 through 10, says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Jesus turns to his Jewish audience and tells him that this Roman Gentile, who are not even sure worships God, is the epitome of what faith in God looks like in times of trouble, in times of distress. The centurion never even met Jesus. He didn't need for him to be in his presence for him to know that he is someone special. And what the centurion realizes is that if you just speak it into existence, I know that this will happen. And, and what I think the centurion's realizing, what Luke is trying to show us, is that he realizes that when Jesus speaks, so does God. And if that's true, then whatever Jesus says can come into being, and he has faith in that. And what happens is the men afterwards, uh, you can go to the next slide, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. So he has faith, Jesus does it. And what Luke is trying to show us is that the centurion is a model of what faith looks like in times of trouble, when we have no options. Now, it's not always the easiest way to go, certainly not easy at all, but he's saying this is what faith looks like. Know that I am God and know that I am able. So when we're asking the question, is God able? The story tells us that when we face times of trouble, when we are out of options, and when we turn to God to hopefully give us an answer or solution, yes, God is able. No matter what we are facing, you can go, there we go, working. God is able. No matter what we are facing, even if it is death, God is bigger. God is more powerful than the circumstances that we face. In the story, Luke wants us, again, to show that the centurion gets when Jesus speaks, so does God. And if that is the case, then what Jesus says goes, and he has the authority to do everything, and, and even more than we can imagine that Jesus wants to do. And even the Gentiles can recognize this authority and believe in God for it. When we are out of options and when we turn to God and we question, is he able, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. 
It's why we come here to praise God, because we recognize that with God, the impossible is possible. When we have no answers or solutions, God is able to provide those answers and solutions. God is able, absolutely, yes, 100%. But, and this is the second question, and in a lot of ways, it's the answer to this question really helps us understand the first one, and we don't really care about the answer to the first unless we know, does he care? In our times of trouble, if God is able to help us, great. But if he doesn't care for me, then what good does that do me? Or or, or the reverse, if God does care for me, great, that's another shoulder to cry on. I don't need that in this time. I, I need answers. I need help. When we're out of options and we need God's help, does he care? And I think there's no coincidence that Luke chooses to tell this story directly after the story of the centurion. He says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. And as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. Again, a couple sentences, but Jesus, his disciples, and a literal crowd are fa- are come across this dead body and this woman. Right? And this dead body, the text says, it was the, the only son to a widow. And I want to rephrase that. It's the only son to a woman whose life is completely over. Completely over. This woman, in this time, she has nothing left. And in this culture, and in this time, everyone around that woman, and everyone hearing the story and reading it would know, this woman has a social death sentence. She has no husband. She has no men in her life to take care of for her. This woman is the epitome of loneliness and sadness. The only thing that can meet her in her time of grief as she goes to bury her dead son is the reality that when he's in the ground, there is not a single person in this world now that is obliged to take care of me, which brings the fear of, will somebody take care of me? I mean, you want to talk about being out of options, being out of hope. This woman is having the worst day of her life and it only looks like it's going to get worse from there and so as jesus approaches her sure she's heard who jesus is what he can do got to imagine that the question she's thinking is does he care does he know this is the worst day of my life does he care about my hurt and the text says in luke 7 13 says when the lord saw her his heart went out to her and he said don't cry now This may seem really simple, one sentence, but this is deeply profound. Jesus is about to show us, again, how able he is and how much he can help us. But before he does that, he wants to make it abundantly clear to this woman just how much he truly does care for her. What do you think it is in this moment that this woman wants? If she she had a magic genie and said, this is what I want, what she probably would have said is, I want my husband back, I want my child back. But in her head, I'm sure she knows that's not a reality. So if that's the case, what do you think this woman wants? This woman wants to know that someone sees her, understands her, can feel the pain that she's feeling, can at the very, have someone there that can understand the level of despair that she's in. As anyone who's been where this woman was, you know that the only thing that you want in this time is to know that you're not alone, to know that there's someone who can weather the storm with you. Again, I've been here, I don't know about you guys, but for me, um, my dad was killed when I was 18, and it truly was a, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
He helped me pay for college. He was my mental and emotional support at that time in my life. He was a very important person. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do? I have, no, I have to drop out of college. I'm going to have to go work and do something that I don't necessarily want to do. I'm not going to have a dad. It, truly, in that moment in my life, I had no options. And the only thing that I wanted to do, and a lot of people probably could feel the same, is I just wanted to take my heart out and put it in someone else's body so that they could feel how I feel feel the despair that I felt, and just have someone go, I get it. I know what it's like, and you're not alone. And truly, one of the most amazing transformational experiences for me when my dad was killed, of all the hours of counseling, of all the visitations, of all the people who came and talked with me and visited with me, the most important time was when my pastor drove an hour away. I know it was inconvenient for him the day before his sermon, and he sat with us for two and a half, three hours. And boy, did I have some questions. Why would God do this? Why would God allow this? How in the world is this acceptable? I'm, I am a, what is going on? I had plenty of questions and I want them answered. But you know what? He didn't answer many of my questions. He didn't try to tell me things are going to get better. He didn't try and tell me how I move one foot in front of the other the next day. He didn't do much, really. But his heart went out to me. His heart went out to my family. And it was the first time I remember feeling that experience. He understands what this is like. And we're not alone. I know my other family members know what it's like, but no one else does. But he gets it. We could feel his heart going out to us. And what Jesus, before Jesus does anything at all with this woman, there he's the Lord of creation. He can do anything that he wants. And before he does anything, he lets her know, I'm with you. His heart goes out. He feels her pain. He says, his heart goes out to her. He says, please, I know how bad this hurts. Please don't cry. Please don't cry. Jesus had compassion for her. He cared for her. And now we're about to see a miracle, okay? But what's important, before we witness this miracle, the order of how Luke tells the story is very important because what he's saying is this story is not a story about a miracle. It's a story about who God is, what his heart is like, and how he cares for his children when they need it the most. In our deepest moments of pain, sometimes I think we feel like what we need is an answer to our solution, an answer to our problem, a solution to that, the thing that we can't fix on our own. But what I think the, the text shows here is that Jesus shows us that sometimes the most effective ministry or care that we can receive or that we can give to someone else is a small act of compassion, letting someone know, I'm with you, my heart goes out to you. Now, God is God. He does something pretty miraculous here, do we see? It says, then he went up and he touched the bear they were carrying him on, and the bear stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. Now, real quick, it says he touched the bier. A bier is a stand or a plank that is used to carry a corpse to its place of burial, right? This is no small detail. Jesus is quite literally touching a dead corpse and is making himself, he knows the rules, he knows what he is not, and not, he knows what he is and is not allowed to do as a Jewish rabbi, and he is making himself unclean. And he knows his Mosaic law, he knows that if he does not purify himself right after this, his own Jewish law says you're, you can be cut off from Israel. Not get a stern reprimanding, not say, Jesus, now you're, no, cut off. And, but what Jesus does not care, he reaches out to the dead corpse because he's interested in bringing dead things back to life. He speaks over, he uses the same words that the centurion says, I say to you, get up. His authority works, he is able. This is a God is able moment, right? He is literally bringing someone back from the dead. God is able to do impossible things. 
But what I absolutely love about this text and how Luke chooses to communicate it is of all of the things that Jesus does right after he does this amazing, life-changing miracle is he says, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Not he then went and purified himself and made him clean, not stood on a hill and said, I, behold, I am the Lord your God, follow me because I have victory over death. He doesn't do anything. He, he recognizes the, the pain that this woman is in and he says, don't cry. Not everything is lost. Here's your son. That is a God cares moment. God is able to help us in our time of need. He is able to make impossible things possible, but he cares so deeply for us. The, the, the next verses say, they were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I believe wholeheartedly I want to say to you this morning is that in our times of deep trouble and all seems lost, when we are out of options, God is able to help us. And God cares for us. Now, this is a very, very difficult sermon for me to prepare this week uh, because of what I'm going to say next. I believe wholeheartedly in what I just said, and I think that a lot of ways, some things in my life have just testified this truth to me. That, that, that God is able to make impossible things happen. He's able to give answers when none, no answers seem to exist. And I can only speak for myself. I know how deeply God has cared for me. And out of that care, I want to tell other people how much he cares for them. I believe that wholeheartedly. Not a word I said do I, th- I, I have unwavering faith in those two statements. But what about the mothers who haven't had their dead children returned to them or their spouses? What about the loved ones who've had to, what about the people who've had to watch their loved ones take their last breath and know that there's not a thing in this world that they can do to stop it from happening, unlike what the centurion had to endure? There are plenty of people that God does not raise from the dead. As far as I know, my dad was never brought back to me and there was no chance of it. Maybe sitting here hearing these stories and saying, good for them. I'm happy, but what about me? Does God still care? Is God able to help me? Does God care for me? Those people where they're they're not, does God care about them? Is he able to help them? And friends, I want to say yes. Yes, he does. I do not know why God doesn't perform miracles for every broken heart. I I, I don't know why he doesn't return all dead loved ones to the one who loved and missed them most. I don't know why he doesn't save us all from experiencing that painful sting of death. But I do know this, that no matter where you are, no matter what you're facing, his heart goes out to you. Just like it did for that woman. One of the cries of Jesus' heart, and we see this in the text, is don't cry. I know this doesn't make sense. I know this hurts. But I tell you, one day I'm going to make all things new. This death, you're not going to have to experience it. This pain, you're not going to have to experience it. One day I'm going to reach my hand out to all of death and say, that's it. Enough. No more. And one of my favorite images of Jesus comes from one of my fellow youth pastors. He, he, at one of our winter retreats, he said, when I think about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father today, I see him like this. Can I go yet? Can, is it time? Can I please? I'm, I'm ready. Please let me come back. And I think that, that that is our hope, is that God, one day Jesus will reach his hand out to death, to all of death, and say, no more. And do you want to know why Jesus wants to end this pain? 
Do you want to know why I can say with full confidence that yes, for those of you that are still experiencing this pain, that God is able to help you and that God does care about you is because he has experienced the pain. Because he knows what it's like to reach out his hands and be on the opposite end of death. To take all of the death for all of the world. And he knows what it's like to look up to God too and say, why have you forsaken me? God knows what it's like to lose a child. And Jesus himself has experienced when, the, when he's out of options, when he was crucified, God was able to raise him from the dead and he cared deeply for him. And why I have so much confidence to say that even if you feel like God is not able and he does not care for you, he, he has experienced it. And I believe with all my heart that he wants to share that with us. And that is our future hope. It's the whole point of the gospel is that God has experienced that death so that we don't have to and that he can ultimately have victory over it. And our invitation this morning is to hear that, to know it, and to maybe even trust and have faith even if we don't understand it. To, to, to hear that, to know it, and to maybe trust even if we can't understand it. You can go to the next last slides here, Tom. That our invitation this morning is that in our times of trouble, this side of heaven, when all hope is lost, when we've run out of options, and when we need God most, he is able. He is able to help us. Our invitation is to trust that, to hear it, and believe it. He, is, he does care for us. And one day, all dead things will be raised to life. And so ultimately, if we trust that, if we believe that, and if we can have hope in it, our invitation this morning is to put our faith, put your faith in him. Put your faith in the one who is able to help you now and in, in, in any other circumstance that you can't possibly think of right now, to put your faith in the one who cares about you so much that he died so you don't have to experience the final sting of death. Let's pray. Father, I'm just fairly overwhelmed by the reality that you love and you care for us so much that you would experience the pain and sting of death in a way that none of us had. God, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that you loved us so much that you would rather die than spend eternity without us. God, there are times, there are situations in this world where it is impossible, impossible to actually fathom that you do care for us and that you, do, that you are able to help us. But God, your word testifies that we can have faith in both of those things. So God, even in our times where we are struggling with it, God, I pray that you would empower us, that you would encourage us and embolden us to believe and to have faith, even when it's the hardest thing to do. And God, one day we have hope that that faith will be answered and that you will come and make all dead things alive again. And that that day we will get to rejoice and say hallelujah. God, today we, I just ask for your blessing and I ask that you would help us to put one foot in front of the other and just have faith that you are a God who is able to help us and that you are a God who cares for us deeply. Amen.